0: This is Professor Allen, and welcome to the Quarter Bin. In every episode of this podcast, I will summarize, criticize, discuss, and review a single issue from my comic collection, which I will select at random. Any book from my comic book collection is eligible, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for it. Was the issue worth 25 cents? Was it a bargain at 25 cents, or was it still overpriced? Stay tuned and find out. For this 176th episode of the Quarterbin Podcast, we are looking at The Savage She-Hulk, number five, from Marvel Comics, cover dated June 1980. But first, a little feedback. The last two Quarterbin episodes came out in close succession, one to another, a quirk of the scheduling. So, 175 was recorded just a day or so after 174 came out. So, we only covered the very earliest of feedbacks on that one last time. So, here we have some comments on both 174 and 175. Drew, from Comics for Fun and Profit, noticed. How close those episodes came out? You are cranking them out, Professor. Well, it did help that the one I recorded with Paul, that was done over the summer. On Batman, Gordon's Law, that episode, uh, 174, we heard from Manuel Carmona, the man behind Project New Wave, who said he enjoyed the show. I never heard of this book until you talked about it, and it's so cool to discover new books. I always enjoy Batman-Gordon interactions, so this was right up my alley. Although Gordon yelling at Bats that he's not police seemed kind of off to me. Yeah, I get that, Manuel. I wonder if that's because it was a police-versus-police issue. And that is just one situation where Gordon does not need Batman nosing around. But I want to know, That for sure until I read the next of the series, which is next year sometime, if I remember. And I will report right back here. Sir, Sir Martin of Grey also had some thoughts on Gordon's Law. I remember this series, well, this book, but I'm not sure I read beyond the first issue. While it's inarguably well done for what it is, I was never a big fan of Chuck Dixon's Gotham stuff. It was always a little too street level. Case in point, a story spanning several months involving counterfeit bills or something. Still, it's always fun when you get to use your business sense. He did add that he is also a big fan of Klaus Janssen's art. Thank you, Mart, for that. Luke Giaconetti wrote in on both of the last two episodes. Professor recently I had a chance to listen to the recent episodes of The Quarterbin. I had never heard of Gordon's Law, at least not that I remember. Well, this series did evidently slide right under the radar. I guess that's how it ended up in the quarter bin. And if I'm being honest, Luke continues, While in 1996 and 97 I was reading DC Comics, specifically the Superman titles, Sandman Mystery Theater... I most likely would have passed this series over at the time. I was not a Batman reader. Never have been. And the promise of Chuck Dixon doing a police procedural would not have appealed to me at 16. Now, of course, it sounds like a real treat. I was very pleased to find that the series is collected on Hoopla as part of the Gordon of Gotham trade, along with two other Commissioner Gordon-focused minis, Gordon of Gotham, and GCPD, I will definitely be checking those series out, perhaps as part of Crime Comics Month in May. Yes, Luke, me too. As to the Twilight Zone, I distinctly remember watching the 1980s version as a kid, along with Amazing Stories, forever linking those two in my brain. And later, became very well-versed in the original series, thanks to reruns on Channel 11. W-P-I-X. My father was a big fan of Twilight Zone, which helped. In the 90s, he eventually had the entire series on VHS. And with two episodes per tape, that was a big stack of Twilight Zones. Anyway, this issue came out before I was into comics, and thus had no idea that Now Comics had done this series. The issue itself does sound solid, and reminds me that while we remember the downbeat TZ episodes as the most memorable, that there are more than a few with optimistic endings as well. Never seen this title out in the wild, but I will be sure to keep an eye on it. As an aside, I always recommend to screen the episode Night of the Meek during the Christmas season. It is one of the quintessential upbeat TZ episodes, but one a lot of people overlook. Perhaps for just that reason. As always, I enjoy the show and all the unusual fare which finds its way into the cheapy bins. You keep recording them, Professor, and I'll keep listening to them. Thanks, Luke. Well, thank you, Luke. And on last episode with Paul Spatero, we heard from Billy D from Magazines and Monsters and the new Infinity Inc. show, Star Rocket Radio. He said that it was a good episode. Sounds like a solid book, Professor. Always good to hear Paul back on the show. The morning commute was made enjoyable by you, two. Totally agree, Billy. It is usually good to have Paul back on the show. Sean Urbanski saw the preview post and said, I'm really looking forward to this one, fellas. Manuel Carmona agreed with a point that Paul made. Good conversation. I agree that if the comic were black and white, it would have fit better with the original TV series. Maybe the publisher wanted to reach a wider audience. But I have a feeling that the vast majority of people who followed or bought this were already Twilight Zone fans. So color wouldn't necessarily be a draw since the series was black and white. It's a good point, Manuel. Appreciate that feedback. Social media love for last episode came from... Drew from Comics for Fun and Profit. Tim Price, the podcrasher from the Outcasters. Laurel, Mountain Flower One from the Huntress podcast. Charlton Hero, Two True Freaks, The Telltale Mind. Karen from Between the Pages. James Williams from Karen. Mark Radulich, Chris Lydon. Clinton from Days of High Adventure. Kirk Spencer, Big Five Army. Ed Moore from Teal Productions, Robert Ludwig, the most sane man amongst, Dave's Comic Heroes blog, Chris Willett, Derek from the History of Comics on Film, Ranger Gord from Prairie Justice, Anthony Percante, Ben Herman 123, Vic and Phoenix, and our listeners of the year, the kind and lovely Sutherlands from the Rad Adventures Network. Thank you all for that feedback and support. We will take a break here, and when we come back, we are going to get savage. Cancelled Comics Calvacade. Dead Universes. Red Circle. New Universe. Ultraverse. Atlas. Charlton. America's Best. Dead Publishers. Eclipse. First. Pacific. Now. Dead imprints, Vertigo, Star, Epic, Rivera, CMX, Dead Continuities, Dark Horse Star Wars, Dark Horse Aliens, Dark Horse Predator, Dark Horse Conan, Dark... Okay, there's a lot of stuff that got taken from Dark Horse. Comics once again canceled. We'll live here. Coming in December. And we're back. The Savage She-Hulk number 5 at a cover price of 40 cents. Meaning that I purchased this comic at a 37.5% markdown. The cover, by Al Milgram and Joe Sinnott, shows She-Hulk at the bottom of the page turned away from us, and she is punching, like really walloping, a large, long, red, snake-like machine. They are underground, and as the text box says, crawler. In the Caverns of Doom. And before you get excited, no, not that doom. Just doom in the more generic sense, I guess. My copy also has a yellow clearance sticker right there on the cover. With the magical 25 cents price. There's actually a second tag underneath that one. Showing that half price books originally tried to sell the book for a buck. Let that be a lesson, friends. Patience pays off. The story, Dirty Deal, was written by David Anthony Kraft with art by Mike Vosberg and Chick Stone. We start on what appears to be the Golden Gate Bridge, except that a caption box reads, A late afternoon tremor in Los Angeles spills sudden and very serious trouble. So whatever California city we're in and whatever bridge we are at, She-Hulk is straddling that bridge, holding suspension uh, coils or uh, wires. I don't know the proper architectural terminology, but she is holding both strands, both sides of the suspension bridge, keeping both sections of the bridge aloft While she yells to the civilians around her to get off the bridge, make it to solid ground. And as the She Hulk valiantly holds on, the onlookers panic, and these onlookers hold a variety of views regarding She Hulk's character. I sure hope she can save us. Save us? I wouldn't be surprised if she's out to destroy us. From what I heard, she's a murderer, a monster! Run! One of the people on the bridge is Assistant District Attorney Buck Bukowski. The She-Hulk is tearing up the bridge, trying to kill us all. You see, ever since he misinterpreted She-Hulk's actions back in Issue 2 of the series, he has really been on her case. While she strains to hold the bridge together, She-Hulk's mind drifts back to earlier in the afternoon, where as Attorney Jennifer Walters... She attended a press conference with her father, Sheriff Morris Walters, and Henry Mason, the president of Roxxon Oil. Mason reveals, much to the skepticism of the gathered reporters, that Roxxon's oil supply is vanishing without a trace. Afterwards, commentators on television, including possibly President Jimmy Carter, expressed their disbelief considering this to be nothing more than hashtag fake news. My fellow Americans, this time, big oil has gone too far. Afterwards, in the halls of the courthouse, Buck, the assistant DA, finds Jennifer and gives her a ride in his posh new Porsche. During the trip, he needles at Jennifer for defending the big evil oil company which causes her adrenaline to spike. She thought bubbles. No use. Can't control it. No way to stop it. As she jumps out of the car, Buck chuckles, pleased with just how much he got under her skin. She ducks behind a large uh, buttress or bridge structure, and in seconds... Petite attorney Jennifer Walters is replaced by the raging form of the She Hulk. At that point, the tremors began, the bridge ripped apart, and she jumped in to save the day. So, all of that brings us back to the present moment where she is still holding the suspension cables together. But she loses her grip just as all the civilians have reached safety. And then the bridge collapses. The only good thing about this is that Buck's posh new Porsche falls into the drink along with many other vehicles. Of course, he blames She-Hulk. Shortly thereafter, it is Jennifer, not the She-Hulk, who crawls wet and cold from the water. Later that night, Sheriff Walters and his officers disguise themselves as Roxxon employees working the night shift. When Henry Mason arrives, Morris tells him that not a drop of oil had gone missing while on his watch. Except a swift tour of several tanks is taken, and they're all like this, drained dry. Despite never having taken their eyes off the tanks, the oil, it's gone. At home, Jen gets out of the shower just in time for her cool neighbor Zapper to arrive. If you want to picture a hipster with puffy 70s hair, 70s mustache, and 70s sideburns, congratulations, you are picturing Zapper. He points out to the room in general, I mean, I guess to us as readers, that he is the only one who knows her secret. She shares her concerns with him, and he, despite being just a lowly med student, takes a blood sample. I'll get it analyzed, see what I can find out. Just then, Jen receives a mysterious phone call from a mysterious voice, and agrees to meet at a mysterious location at a mysterious time. At midnight, she arrives at an unguarded Roxanne storage area. And she enters one of the tanks, sitting at the catwalk above, waiting. Suddenly, tremors begin shaking the tank, and the oil begins to be sucked downwards. A tremor knocks Jennifer off her balance, and she falls into the oil. Must get to the surface, or suffocate. This is like spinning around inside a big cement mixer. Through a tube, gathering speed like a thrashing human torpedo, dazed, Angry and spoiling for a fight, the She-Hulk struggles ashore. She is stopped short when she finds herself in an underground cave with a massive mechanical creature called the Silver Serpent. And in one of my favorite things in Bronze Age comics, the Silver Serpent is spoken by Jen in font. The machine is... Blue and white, or I guess based on the name, it's supposed to be blue and silver. And the font for the words the, silver, and serpent are also in a matching color scheme. And it's wonderful. Inside, as yet unaware of her hulking presence, are mobster Nick Trask and his rival Lou Moncton. Moncton is tied up, and from their dialogue we can infer that Moncton made the mysterious call to Jen. Trask's serpent has been sucking the oil from Roxan's tanks, and Trask plans to conquer the world's economy with the stolen oil, which is an extremely flawed but beautifully inventive plan. She-Hulk, enraged at Trask's presence, starts punching at the silver serpent with a Zack, a T'Bing a Krang, and a Freck. The serpent swats She-Hulk away and begins battering her with stones from the cavern floor. She-Hulk overcomes that attack and grabs the tail of the silver serpent, whipping the massive vehicle against the cavern floor and walls. This assault forces Trask out of the serpent. I happen to know that you are really Jennifer Walters, and I've got your client. Moncton is slumped over, tied up. It's him or me, She-Hulk, you decide. He throws the bound and still unconscious Moncton into a pool of oil, leaving him to drown. She moves to save Moncton. Suddenly, with terrifying speed, the serpent's tail slashes out. Trask is trying to bring the whole cavern crashing down on us. Trask believes himself victorious and begins to gloat. I don't see how this hubris could ever lead to his downfall. Oh, wait. So swept up in his triumph is he that Nick Trask has failed to notice a dangerous malfunction until it is too late. The control panel is burned out, and the silver serpent begins burrowing further underground toward the center of the earth, out of control, leaving Trask screaming at his impending doom, No! Meanwhile, bracing her back to take the brunt of the blows, She-Hulk shelters Moncton from countless tons of falling dirt and rock. There is barely any air, and she worries that they'll suffocate. She crawls her way up a tunnel and just then begins reverting back to Jennifer Walters. As she makes it to the surface, she throws Moncton to safety, but a rock slide traps her. On the last page, hours later, Moncton awakens and hears Jen's screaming. He pulls her from the rubble and she tells him she now has enough information to clear his name. Back at the courthouse, Buck expresses his frustration at Jen winning yet again. And Henry Mason thanks Jen for confirming Roxon's innocence. I don't know how she did it, the Roxon president tells the sheriff. But Jennifer saved the biggest oil company in the country and showed people that big is not always bad. Jennifer ends the issue. With a bit of a monologue talking about people's willingness to believe the worst about things they don't understand, especially if that thing is big and powerful, like an oil company. And then in a thought bubble, she adds, or big and powerful, like the She Hulk. The end. In terms of analyzing this, of discussing this, I'm trying to decide if I should start with the actual comic story, or just jump to the business stuff first. And I think that's where I'm going. Let's, let's talk about the business aspects of this, and then we'll work back around it and get to the comic book aspects of this. First, let's deal with the specifics of Trask's plan. The idea of stealing all the oil from the largest oil company in the U.S., maybe the world, though we don't know that for sure. British Petroleum, Royal Dutch Shell, may have something to say about that. But the idea that stealing all the oil from a company's oil tanks and drums will cripple them and allow the thief to then control all the world's oil, and thus the world. First, let's go with the positive aspects of this plan. Oil is a really important resource. That is what Trask has correct. To be honest, the importance of oil is one major reason why the Middle East has such geopolitical importance. But it's not necessarily the most important resource on Earth, or not so dominatingly important that controlling it would lead to control of the world. But even if you think controlling the world's oil would lead to world dominance, this plan does not, in fact, accomplish that. At least, not in the way that Trask is going about it. Because if you stole all of Roxanne's oil, not just from this one tank farm, but all of it, there are other companies to deal with, as I said, to say nothing of nation-states. But even that's not the biggest problem. The biggest problem is if you stole all of Roxanne's oil, that would hurt them. It would hit them financially. But their immediate response would be to just pump more of the stuff right out of the ground. No, it's not an infinite resource, obviously. But there is more out there to be harvested than is lying around in barrels and tanks today. It's kind of replaceable. So... This is more of a wacky DC 1950s evil genius criminal plot, and just wouldn't really work in a realistic sense, say in a Marvel comic circa 1980. But it's not so much the plot, it's the theme that really intrigues me. The idea that big doesn't necessarily mean bad. For a She-Hulk comic, it's a theme that's valuable to be communicated. Because clearly, as we see in the first few pages, She-Hulk is thoroughly misunderstood. You may even say, feared and hated by those she's sworn to protect. To many in this comic, and this isn't crazy, big plus misunderstood equals dangerous. This comic came out in early 1980s. Jimmy Carter was president, as I mentioned in the recap. At the time of the comic, he was winding down his only term as president. Nice fella. An accomplished ex-president. But he led an administration that was largely, largely a failure. Energy crisis. Gas rationing. Only able to go to the station on certain days based on your license plate number. OPEC. Hostages in Iran. Iran. A lot of the problems that Carter faced as president were based to one extent or another on oil and on the region where a lot of it comes from. Oil companies, gas companies, became entities that we as citizens had to think about more than we ever wanted to. And a lot of that thinking was not positive. There was a lot of blame to go around in those days from President Carter's administration to the oil producing nations of the world, to the big oil companies themselves. Everyone came in for their share of blame, of anger, occasionally of vitriol, often by people who were legitimately frustrated, but had about as good a handle on the intricacies of the oil business as, say, Mr. Trask does in this issue. You know, our villain. Not that this story is pro-big business, but what it is, I think, is anti-anti-big business. And confession, I'm sort of around there. I'm certainly not anti-business in general. I think given our world, the people therein, a competitive business atmosphere tends to create wealth, defeats these zero-gain circumstances that often exist. Over the history of human civilization throughout time and all over the earth, the majority of circumstances for people is almost exclusively abject poverty. A society with a strong middle class, good jobs, education, that is the exception. The question isn't really why is there poverty? Better question is why is there prosperity? And personally, and professionally. I don't think it's a coincidence that the spread of prosperity begins in times and places where a competitive free market system exists, with all the good and bad that that entails. But the key to that analysis is not business, but competition. I'm not pro-business per se. I'm pro-competition. And it bums me that that view represents a small slice of economic thought, political policy, etc. And because I like competition and also like competence, I tend to not like too many big organizations or big entities. I don't believe that big is always bad, but I do believe that big is more likely to be inefficient, ineffective, incompetent, and also potentially corrupt. And criminal. Big tech, big media, big government, big pharma. Oh, wait, sorry, big pharma are actually angels now. Talk about an amazing PR coup the last 18 months. White papers will be written about big pharma's transformation for decades. Big labor, big banks, big education, Big Ten football teams in the NCAA playoffs. Big oil, big cereal, big water, big comics. Again, I don't think big businesses are by definition bad, which puts me out of step with many on one team. But I definitely think that big businesses have a tremendous potential to become bad. And that puts me out of step with many on the other team. So I guess what I'm saying is that I am just fascinated by the theme of this issue and in the instrument. Roxon oil that David Anthony Craft uses to deliver that theme. It is such an unexpected concept, especially in a big two mainstream comic book. I did not see that final soliloquy coming, comparing Roxxon and She-Hulk both as misunderstood behemoths. But I like that nuance. I like the subtlety. It's just a take I was floored by. And even though I'm not 100% on board with that theme, I don't have to love a particular theme or idea to appreciate its inclusion in a work of fiction. I think it's cool that it was there. That craft went there. And the particular details aside, I do think there's a close to universal theme here. Not that big is always bad. But certainly, things we don't understand, things we're intimidated by, those things we immediately fear. And I think what Kraft is saying is that maybe we shouldn't fear the unknown, even if it is really big. In turning to the rest of the comic, I should begin by saying that I don't think I've mentioned this so far. But I do need to point out that this comic book was written by the late David Anthony Kraft. He passed away about six months ago as I record this in May 2021 from COVID 19. He was 68 years old. Kraft spent most of his comics writing career at Marvel, with his longest runs being this one on She Hulk and a stint on The Defenders. He also wrote a good chunk of World's Finest Comics. But he's probably best known for founding the Comics Interview magazine, which ran 150 issues between 1983 and 1995. Kraft also wrote the Logan's Run adaptations for Marvel, which the fellows at Back to the Bins covered intermittently during the last year or so. And on one of those episodes... They went out of their way to say nice things about Kraft and his comic's career shortly after his passing. Now, on this issue of She-Hulk in particular, I thought the story and the script were both strong. Like I said, it's not a realistic plot, but it is a crazy, fun comic book plot. I mentioned the conflict of whether this was taking place in San Francisco or Los Angeles. You know, but when you think about it, Compared to where all the other Marvel stories take place, New York City, L.A., San Francisco, eh. Pretty much the same thing from a New York perspective, right? I, I just imagine there was a miscommunication somewhere along the line, maybe in terms of how the artist chose to, to show that bridge. Uh, but whatever, a, a bit like that doesn't really matter all that much. One thing that did annoy, and I do wonder how this happened, was that the Silver Serpent, font and all. But on the cover, the drilling machine was colored bright red, not the silvery blue from the interior. Now this, I have two theories about. The more complex one is that it was communicated to the cover artists, Milgram and Sinnott, that She-Hulk was going up against a large, snake-like machine called the Scarlet Serpent. Either that was miscommunicated or they heard that or someone said Scarlet instead of Silver, I don't know. Maybe it was originally going to be called the Scarlet Serpent and somewhere along the line it was changed to Silver. Or that's what the colorist was told or, or what they thought they were told. But maybe... Maybe the simplest answer, maybe the Occam's razor answer, is that someone, color artist or editor, thought that red would look way better on the cover than blue. Sometimes it's just that simple. Either way, I will point out that the name of this drilling machine is nowhere on the cover. So I do think that they knew that there was a conflict between the name of the device and the color of the device on the cover. And didn't want to draw attention to it by calling it by a name not represented by what's on the cover. And of the two color options, I think bluish-silver sort of works. And certainly the font used for the words the silver and serpent and the blue color given to those words inside is pretty cool the strengths of the story far outweigh those quibbles. The side characters are all well-presented. From Jen's dad slash sheriff to the assistant DA slash troublemaker and the neighbor slash all-around happening dude and cool cat. To be honest, I think I spent most of the mid-80s to mid-90s cosplaying as Zapper. And there is one move that she Hulk pulls off in this issue that I love because she did it so much better than the thing usually does and that is pulling up and whipping something so it sends ripples down and eventually you know knocks someone over thing usually does this with sidewalks or paved streets which is let's be charitable here impossible Those items are much too brittle. There's no give in there. There's no flex, nor is there with train tracks, which I've seen Thing manipulate in the same way. But no, just no. However, this silver serpent device is strong and sturdy, yet it has flex built right into it. So picking it up From the back and giving it a tug, giving it a flip of the wrist, and having that flip run through the machine, that is much closer to viable than any of those other examples I mentioned of a big orange rock monster trying the same move. And we do have a dramatic ending for Nicholas Trask and his drilling machine. The last we see of him and his machine in this issue, and spoilers, The last we see of him and his machine in Marvel Comics history, from what I can tell, is the two of them heading straight for the center of the Earth. Yes, it is a bummer that his own hubris does him in and not She-Hulk's actions directly, but he does get his just desserts in the dramatic and, and, and literary sense. But have no fear, I'm sure sometime between 2025 and 2029, Marvel will do a mega-crossover event featuring the Silver Serpent, Tyrannus, and Mole Man plotting to take over the surface world. Old comic characters are never truly forgotten, never truly gone forever. And from what I can tell, Nicholas Trask is not related to the Sentinel creating Bolivar Trask and his family, or the handful of other Trasks that have appeared in the Marvel Universe. It's a strangely common last name in comic books. If it's not clear, I really enjoyed this. Over the past few years, I've probably read twenty issues of She-Hulk, mostly from the John Byrne era, a sensational She-Hulk, and more recent issues and one offs as well. I don't know that I've read anything from Savage. And though quite different, not fourth wall breaking, obviously not going for humor first. So obviously this is a more traditional superhero comic. And I like that. There really was a lot to like about this issue. And I've always loved when Jennifer Walters does straight, traditional, lawyering stuff. And in this issue, that's what she does. Now, I also think I deserve a huge pat on the back for never once, until now, describing that massive earth-digging device, the Silver Serpent, as what it actually is, a boring device. Because I don't think She-Hulk, at this stage of her career, has a great sense of humor, and she might not like the boring joke. And really... Look, I don't need She-Hulk coming after me, too. It's bad enough that I have Stella gunning for me. Whoa. I think maybe I've said too much. Stella may be able to track me through the podcast. Um, I need to wrap this up. And soon. The verdict. On the Savage She-Hulk number 5, this was fun. It took an interesting take on big business. And it offered a defense of... Things we don't understand, including big companies. And I didn't really mention this, but it also offered a spirited defense of defense lawyers. And it featured a big mechanical serpent shaped drilling machine. Come on! How could anyone not love that? Okay, maybe not love, but really, really like, which is how I feel about this issue. I really, really liked it. And that machine was the only thing boring in this whole issue. Because this is a definite quarter bin deal. And that wraps up our coverage of The Savage She-Hulk, bringing episode 176 to a close. Next time, I will be bowing to the will of the people. Or at least the people on Twitter or at least the people on Twitter who answered a poll which allowed for y'all to vote on what I would cover in episode 177. And of course, you picked the issue from the dollar comics era, the one with not one, not two, not three, not four, but five stories in it. Because why shouldn't I do extra work for you? Right as the semester is ending, and I'm working on final exams and projects, posting my grading process every day on Facebook, this, this is why democracy is failing. But my own whining aside, the comic that won that poll, and thus that will be covered next time, is World's Finest 277 from DC Comics, covered in March. 1982. If you have any questions or comments about the issue, the episode, She-Hulk, Big Things That We Don't Understand, or the podcast in general, feel free to contact me. Until next episode, I'm Professor Allen, and I'll see you in the quarterback. The Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Show notes and links are available at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com, where the podcasts Uncovering the Bronze Age and Short Box Showcase also make their home. Links to Facebook and Twitter are there as well. Feedback for the show is welcome at relativelygeeky at gmail.com. And if you like what we've got going here, please leave a review and a rating in iTunes. It'll help more people discover the show. Thanks again for listening.